I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, More of the Holy Spirit. The kinds of things the Holy Spirit does are often misunderstood to be strange gifts given to one disciple of Jesus, like healing or tongues, but not to another. But the New Testament actually teaches that all disciples of Jesus have access to all of the incredible things the Spirit does, the most important amongst them, the ancient art form of prophecy. Lots of work to do this evening, so we're going to try to get right into it. We are uh, knee-deep in a series about the Holy Spirit that has been years in the making, lots of content already, so if you are new or you missed out, feel free to go back and catch up on the podcast. Tonight, after weeks of dense Bible theology, we're going to pick up where Cam left off last week and continue to unpack where all that Bible and theology is taking our church in the pragmatic sense in the months and years to come. And we're going to begin all that in a letter we now call 1 Corinthians. So once you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, read along in verse 1. Paul writes, Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Now, notice this. Paul begins this entire passage by telling a church some 2,000 years ago, and I quote, "...now about the gifts of the Spirit." Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So isn't it strange and a bit tragic that hundreds of years later, centuries and centuries later, all over the world there are huge groups of Jesus' disciples, entire churches and movements and denominations who remain uninformed of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit does. So think about it. When you hear words like prophecy or words like tongues, especially, or miraculous healing, are these things that you feel most modern disciples of Jesus understand in a healthy, balanced, and theologically robust way? Or are they kind of at least confusing, if not strange and divisive and likely misunderstood? And a tremendous amount of our misunderstanding is actually born from this passage and uh, one of, I would argue, the most misread passages in the New Testament. Bear with me for a few minutes while I give you guys a, a bit of a technical overview in how we believe this passage has often been misread. 
in recent decades. The popular misunderstanding of this passage that we just read is that it teaches that a spiritual gift is a gift or ability one is given when they come to faith in Jesus or are saved, in other words, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. All disciples of Jesus in this line of thinking have at least one such gift. Maybe you have two or three. There are three or four lists of these types of gifts in the, gifts in the New Testament. One of them is here in 1 Corinthians 12, like we just read. You get seven more in Romans 12, prophecy, teaching, serving, encouragement, giving, leading, mercy. You get five more in Ephesians 4, apostles, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And some scholars argue for another list in Peter's letters later on. Now, this is not how the New Testament has been read and understood down throughout church history, but it is how this passage has been interpreted for about the last 50 or 60 years or so. And with all due respect, we believe it is badly mistaken, and we're not alone in that. A number of scholars argue that the better and more historic way of understanding this idea of the gifts of the Spirit begins with 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Paul writes, now, about the gifts of the Spirit, and stop there. If you have an ESV, it reads spiritual gifts. The thing is, just about everyone, regardless of where they are in the debate, just about everyone agrees that this is a lousy translation from Greek to English. See, the problem is that the term gifts of the Spirit is actually one word in Greek, pneumatikos, super tricky to translate into English because it's actually an adjective in want of a noun, but there's no noun there. So we might translate it as spiritual people or spiritual things, but more literally, it's just spirituals. And the word gift just isn't there. In fact, all of the passages taken to, to describe spiritual gifts here, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, the Greek word for spiritual, which is pneumatikos, and gifts, which is charisma, never appear side by side at all. And the reason I would argue that you don't find the term spiritual gifts in the New Testament is because there is no such thing. There are no Holy Spirit superpowers gifted to one person and not another. So the question is, why are there lists at all? Well, the one in Romans 12, for example, which is prophecy, teaching, encouragement, giving, leading, mercy, it isn't a list of Holy Spirit gifts given when one comes to faith. It's just a list of gifts in general. I don't think the list is exhaustive. I think that you could add to it like musicianship or parenting or engineering or writing or cooking, whatever it might be. The whole point in that passage is whatever way that it is God has gifted you uniquely or vocationally, leverage that gift for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what that passage is about. In Ephesians 4, you don't have a list of spiritual gifts you have a list of different types of leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, different types of wirings and personalities uniquely gifted to women and to men for the sake of leading the church. So 1 Corinthians 12, what, we're being, what we've been reading this evening, is not a list of spiritual gifts. It is a list of spirituals. Or another translation, my personal favorite, is that it is a list of the stuff the Spirit does. In verse 7, Paul calls it the manifestations of the Spirit. In Greek, it means a revelation or an unveiling. For Paul, things like prophecy or even things like tongue, tongues, they all unveil the Spirit of God. They reveal the Spirit of God. When we see someone who is sick and then we pray for them and they become miraculously healed, that is a manifestation, a revelation of God himself. And here's why that distinction is so crucial. Please listen to me on this. 
in the recent reinterpretation of these passages, you might have one of these spiritual gifts, or, or maybe you have two if you're lucky, but you don't have the others. But if this is not a list of spiritual gifts, but just a list of the kinds of things the Spirit does through disciples of Jesus, then that means that the entire list is open to every single disciple of Jesus. So do not read this list and wonder which gift you have and which gift you do not have. Read this list, all of it, and know this. These are the kinds of things the Spirit of Jesus wants to do through you. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues and in the interpretation of tongues. And they are the kinds of things done by Jesus himself. So let me show you that. Look back at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, where Paul writes this, to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. Now, bear with me because Paul doesn't offer his own complex you know, commentary on each list item, so you have to kind of build it out a bit yourself from the life of Jesus and the rest of the writings of the New Testament. So let's go through this list and kind of define each thing. First, a message of wisdom. This is a word or a message from the Spirit through you to someone else who is in need of wisdom for navigating life. Now, to be clear, there are often times when no specific word from the Spirit is necessary because we have the Bible, we have the teachings of Jesus. So, you know, if you're at a hard place in your marriage and you just like kind of bored, you don't feel happy anymore, and you're wondering if you should get a divorce and move on, you don't need a message of wisdom from God's Spirit. The teachings of Jesus and the Scriptures are uniformly clear on that. Should you get a divorce because you're bored? No. The answer is no, and that's that. But what about something like, oh, I don't know, is it the right time to have a kid? Or is it the right time to make a certain big career move? Or is it the right time to move to a city? Things that aren't right or wrong per se, but they could be good, they could be bad, and you just need wisdom. And that bleeds over into the next item on Paul's list. Look at the rest of verse 8. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. So it's a similar idea, but rather than general wisdom, this is a message of knowledge, meaning something specific that you couldn't possibly know unless the Spirit told you. You read this kind of thing in the life of Jesus quite a bit. Think of the, the easiest example is Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, how he knew about her entire romantic history and who she was living with and all that, despite having never met her or having no prior knowledge about her whatsoever. If you think back to earlier in the series, we argue that Jesus didn't do things like that because he was God. He was, to be clear, but he did that through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's called a word of knowledge. A couple of years ago, we were praying and listening one afternoon before church, and Levi, who's the leader around here, uh, during pre-gathering prayer, he's like, yeah, man, I just know this is weird, but I just feel like that this, the sense I get and then he unloaded the most specific details in the world. It was like about a young lady's hair color and age and a specific physical ailment going on in her body and how God wanted to bring healing and restoration to this person. And we're like, wow, okay, that's pretty specific. But sure, let's give it a shot. So we shared Levi's word on stage during the gathering. And then minutes later, we were praying for that exact person right down to the age, hair color, specific ailment, body, everything. And God began to do a healing work there. Now, it's not even always good stuff that you get from a word of knowledge. Think of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It could be about sin in someone else's life. It could be a, a rebuke or a conviction from the Spirit. It could be something um, that's on the horizon that might be unpleasant, a word of warning. 
So my advice, caveat on this one is, my advice is never accuse, always ask. Um, I was on a prayer team with one, uh, another pastor friend of mine at another church once, and we were praying over a young man who had asked for, I believe it was something as generic as he wanted a prayer about his career or his job or something like that. So like, yeah, absolutely, let's listen to God's Spirit, and then we'll pray for you. We're standing there listening, and then this friend of mine, Alex, was uh, quietly standing there nodding as he waited, and he goes, hey, man, uh, please forgive me if I'm totally way off. Maybe I am, but are you struggling with addiction to pornography right now? And I was like, oh, and, uh, and this young man, like tears began welling up in his eyes, and he nodded and said, yeah, yeah, I am. So he, he said, great, let, let's pray about that as well while we're right here. So never accuse, always ask. Um, now, let's continue with the list. Verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. Now, this is not faith like the kind of faith all of us have to be able to have in the first place just to follow Jesus at all. This is a special, unique kind of faith to believe in the face of the impossible um, and follow Jesus anyway. It's not even faith necessarily that everything's going to work out or everything's going to be fine because it might not, but it's faith that God is in something or behind something or that he's with you and that he's good even when it seems like he's not. Frankly, I feel as though this is something that the Spirit has been doing uh, in my heart as far as the Vansity financial story has been going. I don't feel naive and unrealistic as if we can just sit back and like somehow it'll just all work out what, regardless of what we do. But I also don't feel hopeless or discouraged or, or like doubting God. I feel somehow full of faith in God's goodness by, I think, the Spirit of God. So next on the list, verse 9 goes on, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. Now we'll talk about healing in depth in another teaching in just a few weeks. Um, it's a big deal. It deserves its own thing. But for now, let me just kind of summarize it. Healing is when God restores a person to a kind of wholeness. Physical healing is the obvious example, you know, the restoring of a broken bone, the eradication of cancer, instantaneous removal of something as simple as back pain or a migraine or whatever it might be. But that's not it. There's also emotional healing or spiritual healing. There's healing from social anxiety or healing from depression or a warped view of God. There's relational healing and healing from past trauma, past woundings, healing from abuse or betrayal healing from sin, healing from addiction, demonic oppression, all that kind of thing. Jesus is in the business of healing all those things, not just broken bones and legs and tumors and a cold. And believe it or not, um, I have seen a ton of this. I've been in the vicinity of this. Um, I've seen it happen firsthand. I anything from migraines that disappear in an instant to depression that is subverted into joy and lasts for years to a, a blind man uh, who had his sight restored. Jesus heals people by the Spirit of God. But keep going. Verse 10, it says, to another, miraculous powers. Now, this one of all the items on the list is perhaps the most complicated, namely because I, I honestly don't have an example from here at Van City Church or, or even from my own uh, experience. These stories are certainly well represented in the Bible with Moses and Elijah and Jesus of Nazareth, Elisha, Jesus walks on water, or, you know, he feeds thousands of people with a little boy's lunch, really crazy stuff. It goes on into Acts and the New Testament, and honestly, it continues to carry on through the history of the church, and believe it or not, to this very day. Only now, most of the time when you hear these stories they, about miraculous powers, they come from the developing world in places of desperation and in places of want, not in places of excess and health insurance and high-speed Wi-Fi and Amazon Prime 
And that doesn't mean that, you know, Amazon Prime quenches the spirit per se or that uh, we need to be desperate to see miracles. You don't have to be desperate to see miracles. But remember, the spirit, we've argued all along, is a person, not a force. And he acts and interacts relationally based on the way that we talk to him and pursue him, just like any relationship. And most of us, um, even if we get on board with the rest of the list, we're skeptical about amazing, miraculous things. It's the air we breathe, skepticism. A few years ago, uh, the church I was working for invited a gentleman from India, I believe he was from Calcutta, to come teach a team of pastors about how to better operate in the spirit. It was when we were trying to step out and grow on a lot of this stuff. And so we asked this gentleman who had had a lot of uh, crazy stories and had been teaching pastors about how to grow in the things of the Spirit, to share a bit about what was going on in his part of the world, in his church in Calcutta. He's telling us all these amazing stories, um, things that uh, like uh, I've seen glimpses of before, but that are kind of normalized in his context, and then casually mentioned raising the dead. And, uh, and he mentioned it in a way that I would mention, like, you know, worship was good at church, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, a few of us, and then he just kept going, a few of us like whirled around and looked at one another. This man just said, raise the dead. And then um, 15 minutes later, he goes on, he finishes up his talk, great stuff. And then he's like, so does anyone have any questions? Of course, everyone's hands go up. And the first person to ask, asks the one thing we all wanted to know, which was, did you say back there that you raised the dead? And, uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, and we were like, oh, oh, so that happens? And, uh, and he told us that it did. So naturally, we had more questions. And, uh, and they were all really basic questions, like, so you've seen that happen personally? And he said he had. And, and we were like, how, but how did you know they were dead? You know, that kind of thing. And he was like, well, you know, they hadn't breathed or had a pulse. And uh, we're like, yeah, but how for, lo- for how long? He's like, days. We're like, oh, yeah, it seems, seems dead. <laughs> and, um, and we're like, how, do you, how days? How long did you pray for them? He's like, that long long as it takes. Days in some cases. And we're like, and they came back to life. He's like, yeah. He's like kind of at this point a bit amused by our amazement. And he's like, you guys know that this like happens in the Bible, right? And that like Jesus did this, that he said we would do this, that the early church did this. And, and this room full of pastors, you know, oh, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. We, <laughs> we know that. Point is that that's who God is, the God of miraculous powers, the God who raises the dead, even if it seems, um, even if it brings out the most skeptical among us. But the list isn't even over. It goes on from there. Keep reading in verse 10, to another prophecy. Lots to say there, so let's come back to this one in just a bit. To another, distinguishing between spirits. Now, this is the ability to know or sense if something, like an event, a, a prophecy, a miracle, a manifestation of some kind, is from the Spirit of God or from another Spirit. If you were here for our uh, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil series, you remember that in the worldview of Jesus in the Scriptures, there is an unseen realm that overlaps with the one that we know, and it is populated by spiritual beings. The Bible calls them angels or demons or even gods with a lowercase g. But they have the power and ability, like us, to make real decisions that have a real impact on the world and our lives in it. And because of that, we are sometimes caught in the chaotic whirlwind of the ripple effect from our decisions and the decisions being made in the spiritual realm. And it can be hard to know, is this God that's doing this? Or is this me? Or is this something else? Is this happening because of something someone did? Or is this something God wants? Um, I honestly feel like I'm in one of those times right now where I've been praying every day 
for something really specific to go a certain way and asking for a specific thing, and I've been like asking constantly and fasting about it, and it hasn't gone the way that I'd hoped. And I'm, I'm kind of at a loss, and I keep asking, like, is, is it not going the way I hope because that's how God wants it to be? Is this spiritual opposition that's coming against me, is it just random? Is it circumstantial? And there are times like this when I still don't have answers on this yet, but there are times like these when someone can pray and ask God, hear from the Spirit, listen, this is demonic. Or listen, don't be afraid, God is at work here, or or any of those things all through the direction of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that, it's the unique ability to discern not just what God is up to in a season of your life or in a season of your community or in your church, but what the enemy is up to and why, so that you can be prepared to launch a counterattack. Maybe you've heard someone talk about their sense that they or someone else is under spiritual attack during a certain season uh, of life or during uh, an important season of kingdom of God work. We can know that kind of thing through God's Spirit, discerning between spirits. But there's more in verse 10. Miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits. And then Paul writes, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, tongues is a really weird-sounding way of putting it. The Greek word there is actually glossa, where we get the word glossary. More literally, it's uh, different kinds of languages. Um, Cam is actually going to teach on this in depth next week because I don't want to do it. And <laughs> <laughs> but for now, here's the summary. This is when you speak in a language you do not understand as an act of prayer and praise to God. So whereas prophecy is for other people, tongues are for God. Even so, sometimes a bystander is able to, in certain contexts, by the Spirit, understand this other language they wouldn't know otherwise and to articulate what it means for the benefit of someone who might hear it. This is the only item on the list that is for your benefit and not for other people. This is why we think it comes at the end of the list, meaning it's a thing for sure, absolutely, and we'll talk about it more next week, but it's not the thing if that makes sense. So all that is the list here in Paul's letter. Not an exhaustive list, we don't think, but it includes lots of things the Spirit does. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now, before we end, let's zoom in, as it were, on one item list in particular as a bit of a case study for something that the Spirit does in practice for us in our lives and for Van City Church. Turn just two chapters to the right in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. You guys okay? Great, thanks. Just a, you, you got a few more minutes, Cindy? You'll be fine. We got it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 says... Follow the way of love, and listen to this, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially what? Prophecy. Now, in Greek, the single word translated here as eagerly desire is elsewhere translated as jealousy or to covet, meaning Paul's instruction to disciples of Jesus is to eagerly desire, covet, yearn for, want so bad the manifestations of the Spirit, most of all, prophecy. More so, in fact, than all the other items on the list. Tongues, I know, might be the weirdest item on the list, but prophecy is also an idea that I think we all know comes with a lot of baggage. So before we go any further, let me try to put you at ease by asking a couple of rhetorical clarifying questions. 
If I were to ask you guys as a group, do you believe that God speaks in one way or another to people, my guess is that most of you would likely say, sure, either a confident yes or sure. And then if I were to go on and say, okay, well, do you believe that there are times in life when something about someone else weighs heavily on your heart and mind, a sense, a word, whatever it might be, to the degree that you feel the need to reach out to that person and say, hey, listen, you were on my mind. I was kind of thinking this, and I just wanted to tell you what I was thinking. If I asked you about that, my guess is, again, most of you would say, yeah, I can kind of relate to that experience, or I've heard of that, that's happened to me, whatever it might be. That is what the authors of the Bible call prophecy. And prophecy has always been something God intended for His people. Let me show you what I mean for just a couple of passages, thousands of years old. Most of you are familiar with a, a fellow called Moses, big, big star in the Bible, features heavily in the Old Testament. Look at this really interesting story from Numbers uh, chapter 11. It says, So Moses went out and told the people what Yahweh had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the uh, power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out of the tent. Um, Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, El Dad and me, Dad, are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who had been uh, Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, listen to this, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. So, Notice all the way back in Numbers, really, really old story, Moses is aware of the Spirit's empowerment to prophesy, and he laments that it is a rare and special manifestation of the Spirit of God, rather than a common attribute distributed amongst all of God's people equally and normally. But look what happens. Hundreds of years later, we read this in Joel chapter 2. It says, and afterward, this is God talking about a day in the future, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Exactly what Moses was hoping for. Your sons and daughters will what? Prophesy. Your old men, old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. So what Moses had been longing for centuries prior, Yahweh now says it will come to pass, and it's going to be even better than Moses had anticipated. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, educated, uneducated, across the socioeconomic spectrum, all people will be filled with God's Spirit and prophesied. Then, a few hundred years later, Jeremiah picks up on Joel's prophecy and begins to elaborate. He says, The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
Now notice that fascinating language, I will put my law in their minds, or I will put my Torah in their minds and write it on their hearts. So what God has to say on this future day will no longer be an audible voice, as it seems to have been with Moses coming from a cloud or whatever. On this coming day in the future, God will put what he has to say by direct deposit into the hearts and minds of his people, which is fascinating. So by the time you get to the New Testament and actually read about Joel's vision and Jeremiah's promise coming to pass with the early disciples of Jesus and the beginnings of the church, prophecy has become something a bit different than it was originally. Just as Jeremiah foresaw, the voice of God is no longer an audible voice in a cloud or on a mountain but it comes in images and impressions and sensations in the heart and in the mind. Thus, it logically follows that it is now more subjective than it once was. Meaning if you hear God's audible voice on a mountain, what God is saying would be word for word evident. But if God's voice is being received and processed through the imperfect vessel of your thinking and feeling and then transmitted via imperfect communicators, well, it's not always so clear, which is why there are three unique stages of a given prophecy if you're taking notes. It begins with a revelation, then comes an interpretation, and then finally there is an application. So the idea is that first you get something from the Spirit of God, a revelation, a word or phrase. We'll talk more about this in just a second. A passage or verse from the Bible, an image, comes in different ways. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what does that mean exactly? Sometimes it's you know, exceedingly clear and obvious, and other times it's really, really opaque and vague and ambiguous. Um, it begins with a word or picture, and you need an interpretation. What does it mean? Who's it for? And why? And when? And when you have that, what are you supposed to do about it? What's the application to the interpretation? What should the person you tell do with it? If this sounds familiar, it's the exact same process we use to read and understand the Bible. You read it, you interpret it, you apply it. And notice the way both prophecy and the scriptures can be horrifically abused in this process. So God says something, revelation through the Spirit or through the text, but then we either misinterpret it or misapply it and people get hurt and both prophecy and the Bible get a bad rap. But that is not an inherent flaw or fault in the scriptures or in prophecy. It is in the way we use and misuse either of them. Prophecy is inherently good, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we are to eagerly desire it. He doesn't say, hey, here's a suggestion. He says, as a command, eagerly desire the things of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Covet, yearn for it, want so bad the manifestation of the Spirit and all this prophecy, even more than the other manifestations of the Spirit. And remember, this is something available to all disciples of Jesus, not just a select few. Now, of course, there are some people who are wired in such a way, whether it's because they're more imaginative or visual, whatever it might be, that it seems to come easier to them than to others. That's just the way it is because of personalities and wirings. People whose minds and personalities gravitate toward listening to God more so than others for one reason or another, just as some of us are more inclined to be outgoing or hospitable than other people, even though all disciples of Jesus are called to be outgoing and hospitable for the sake of the gospel. So, you may think something like, man, it sure seems like it's easier for Katie or for Cam to do this than it is for me. Um, but please listen, this is available to all of you. And not only that, but you are, in Paul's words, to eagerly desire all the things the Spirit does, especially prophecy. It's not just an option, you are to desire it. 
And since we admit the term and idea is largely misunderstood, here are a few brief definitions from scholars and theologians that I believe put it really well. Wayne Grudem calls prophecy speaking what God spontaneously brings to mind. It's really that simple, and that's a great definition. Ben Witherington puts it this way, Prophecy is not a sermon by 21st century terms, but it is a spontaneous utterance prompted by the Spirit and based on a sudden and uncontrived revelation from God. Same basic idea with a few more words. And then Greg Haslam uh, puts it this way, prophecy is a phenomenon that results directly from the access the Holy Spirit has to our minds whereby He can create pictures in our imaginations and supernatural dreams while we are asleep. He can put words, ideas, or pictures into our heads with such force that we know that there is something that carries with it the responsibility to pass on and relay what the Holy Spirit has communicated. And notice, that communication typically arrives in one of these ways. First, it comes as a scripture. This might be the most ordinary form. Um, It's regularly, to my estimation, this is regularly carried out by disciples of Jesus who have no idea that what they are doing is prophesying. They'll say something like, hey, listen, you were on my heart today. This verse came to my mind. And they'll send someone an encouraging text message or call them up or pass them in a shop. Say, oh, I was thinking of you. I thought of this verse. Um, And they just think it's an encouragement. We would call that prophecy. It might be uh, just a single word, something like hope. I just, this word hope is in my mind for you or something stop or a phrase like I'll catch you or a phrase like not yet or a phrase like this will pass. All of these, by the way, are real examples from my own life of words spoken over me prophetically. But it might be something more like a picture or a short film that plays in your imagination. This is, for me anyway, the primary way that I hear God speak, usually an image that unfolds like a little movie in my mind, or it could be what we might call a gut feeling. So there's no image or word per se, but there's a sense, um, a heavy sensation that carries with it an idea. Sometimes my wife, Abby, will get uh, this and tell me things like, you know, I don't know what it is, but I feel like something just isn't right with this situation or this person at the moment. I feel like, you know, something needs to be said. And she's often right. That is a prophetic sense. It could even be a sensation in your body that corresponds with the healing work that God wants to do in someone else's body. I know it sounds weird, but it happens all the time, well-documented amongst disciples of Jesus all over the place. Uh, Someone feels like a jolt in their arm, and they get a sense in the Spirit that this actually isn't about their arm at all, but that God wants to heal someone nearby of something going on with their arm. And then finally, it could be a dream or a vision. The uh, difference is pretty simple. With a dream, you're asleep. Vision, you're awake. Same basic thing. So it could be a scripture, a word, a phrase, a picture, a short film, a gut sense, a dream, a vision. Not an exhaustive list, but perhaps the primary list. And what kinds of things might God say through all those means? But look one more time at 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes, once again, in verse 1, follow the way of love, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. In verse 2, he says, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for, listen, they're strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church 
may be edified. Now, obviously, there's a ton there, and it gets into all the weird tongue stuff and all that. But notice this in 3. Paul says that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. That is what prophecy is for, meaning that is the way that God talks. Now, that does not mean that God will never correct you or never rebuke you or convict you. He will, believe me. But even a rebuke from God, a conviction or correction from God, will come for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And if you want to know how you can tell the difference between those things, this is the exact opposite technique of the enemy who will rebuke you to shame you or to weaken you or to discourage you or to distress you. That is how you know the difference. Prophecy is for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Meaning, notice this, that it is rarely about the future. And when it is, it, it is sometimes, but it's rare. When it is, it won't sound like a prediction from Nostradamus or something like that. It sounds like preparation for possibilities on the road ahead. So later in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say this, Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and speaks in tongues and inquires, um, or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul's vision is of a church where, listen to this, everyone is prophesying. And when that happens, even an outsider, even a bystander will fall on their knees and exclaim, God is really here. Paul wants it so bad that if you go on and read the rest of the letter, he goes on to outline really specific parameters and instructions for allowing and encouraging all kinds of prophecy. He wants at least three people to do it. He wants it to be done in an order so that there can be more of it. How to do it in an orderly way so it doesn't become chaotic or a free-for-all. And he concludes all of this in verse 39 by saying, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, once again, be eager to prophesy. Now, sure, be organized. Yes, do it the right way, not the wrong way. Yes, don't get weird about it. He's pretty specific about that as well. But be eager to prophesy, meaning you should make space both in the you know, respectiveness of your individual lives and discipleship to Jesus and in the Sunday gathering, make space to listen we do that every single Sunday. We have been for years. We do it during pre-gathering prayer where we sit down. You're all invited to that, by the way. If you want to come, we listen, wait, and we think this is what's going on. We do it during the gathering almost every single Sunday. Um, I do it every single morning before I even begin to journal or read the scriptures. I just wait and listen. Um, I do it again at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And, and then through that repetition, you learn to listen even in the chaos and movement of life. You start to like, oh, God talks to me. It usually sounds like this. And so when that comes while you're driving or in line at the grocery store, you realize, oh, this, I think this might be from God. So the idea is that you learn to listen, see what comes to mind. If something does come to mind, you ask for clarity. Huh, what's that? 
What does it mean? What am I supposed to do with it? Who is this for? Is this for me? Is this for my church or my community? And when is it for those things? And is it for now? Is it for later? And if you don't know, you learn to ask questions. God, I have no idea what the heck this means. Can you please clarify? And then once you have a sense, it's never going to be perfect or foolproof. Don't uh, convince yourself that, well, I'll act as soon as I know beyond the absolute shadow of the doubt that this came from God. You will never. So as soon as you are confident enough that, man, I just feel like this might be from God, you act. You deliver that message. And please, listen to me on this. When you do deliver that message, never say, point blank, God says. Just don't do that. Say something more like, uh, I have a sense, if you like, or you can say something more like, I think this could be from God's Spirit. Would you please test it? Say it with humility, like that, but also say it with courage. Don't say, oh, I'm probably wrong. This is stupid. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> like, like, be compelled enough to actually say it with courage. You're always going to feel a little bit silly from time to time if you have to say like, uh, something about what you feel like God is saying on behalf of another person. Be willing to be wrong or off. I am all the time. It happens, believe me. No one dies so far. Um, say it with love. Remember, never, ever, ever... Um, say it with anger or with pride or to shame someone or to rebuke someone out of um, some kind of misplaced sense of putting them in their place. Remember, prophecy is about strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And this is about so much more than an optional kind of peripheral thing. If we fail to take prophecy seriously, we can, in, in Paul's language, quench the Spirit of God. He writes in another one of his letters, Do not quench the Spirit. And listen to how he describes we do that. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what's good and reject every kind of evil. The imagery is of the Spirit of God as a blazing fire. And the skeptic or the cynic, the person who rolls their eyes at the, you know, a possible word from God and is dismissive of every single prophetic thing, who, the person who allows a weird past experience to rob them of the good God wants to say and do in and through them by His Spirit, they quench that fire. They throw cold water on it and douse it. Now, that does not mean that you just accept anything that anyone brings to you as a possible prophecy. You don't. Look at what Paul writes. He says, test, test all of them. It could be wrong. Or it could be half right and half wrong. That happens a lot because we're imperfect in our delivery and understanding of what God's saying. So just test them. The testing phase is not actually as complicated as it may seem. They're pretty basic criteria to use to, scr- uh, to screen a potential word from God. The first one, the starting point, is just uh, ask, is this in keeping with the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus? If not, it is not from God. That one's easy. So an alleged prophecy that sounds something like, yeah, I know the Bible says this is wrong, but I just really feel like God's saying he wants me to happy, be happy and do it anyway. Nope, that's not from God. Next, um, ask the question, is it for strengthening encouragement and comfort? Even if it's a correction, even if it's a rebuke, is it to strengthen you, encourage you, and comfort you? And finally, does it confirm what God has already been saying and doing in your own life through what you've been hearing and what you've been receiving from your community and the community of God's people? A prophetic word can sometimes feel like it's totally out of left field, but usually, in my experience and experience of people around me, it has to do with the work that God has already kind of begun, things that He's already begun to say and that, it, that are being confirmed by the community around you. So again, 
These are the kinds of things that the Spirit of God does in and through all disciples of Jesus. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and at the top of that list, eagerly desire prophecy. When the world talks about being like Jesus, which is something we say all the time, sang a whole song about it just a few minutes ago, the things that immediately come to mind for many people are things like, that means be kind, or be compassionate, or maybe social justice causes come to mind, do stuff for the kingdom of God. And those are all aspects of the person and lifestyle of Jesus. But the thing is, the majority of Jesus' work was healing the sick, casting out demons, prophesying, and preaching the gospel. And that's not me making that up. It's not just like a a personal opinion. Read the four gospels and start a tally, if you like. If you want to grow into the kinds of people who are able to do the kinds of things Jesus did, then that list will eventually involve things like healing the sick, casting out demons, prophesying, and preaching the gospel. Not just being kind, and doing social justice. Not less than that, but more than that as well. Frank Viola uh, says something interesting I read this week. He wrote, evil spirits desire to inhabit bodies because they crave expression. That's the whole point of possession. They seek to take over a human body so that they can express themselves through it, employing it for wicked purposes on the earth. Then in contrast, he has Jesus Christ is now in the spirit and he also craves expression. He seeks to make his life visible through a many-membered being. The body of Christ, the church, that's us, exists to express God in the earth. Are you entirely satisfied with the routine of sermons and songs and Bible studies? All, by the way, wonderful, beautiful, crucial, I would argue, things for your discipleship. But do you also crave intimacy, and the voice of God written on your heart and on your mind, and the beautiful and wild empowerment of God's Spirit over your life as a student or in your job or as a parent or as an artist or as a friend or as a community person, and all that God has for you and all that God has for your family and your community. I know I can't be alone in wanting more than just the simple routines of church, wanting the kind of intimacy with God that is able to know and hear His voice and to see miracles. Who doesn't want to see miracles? And to eagerly desire all the things that the Spirit does, regardless of the past, regardless of weird stuff and misuses and abuses, to say, yeah, that's true. We acknowledge that. There's a lot of weird stuff out there, but we want to know the real stuff of the Holy Spirit and to know it well. I couldn't get this morning, I, like I was working on this teaching and reading that weird story from Numbers about the two guys who stay in the tent <laughs> and get anointed with the Spirit anyway and they prophesy and Joshua's like, hey Moses, you gotta make these guys stop and he's like, I wish all of God's people could prophesy. This all this time ago and, and for, like uh, the prophets would come along and say, one day this is going to happen for all of God's people. And they were waiting for hundreds of years. And then finally in Acts, the Spirit gets poured out and all of God's people can access finally the anointing of the Holy Spirit, not just on and over them, but inside them to prophesy just like God said it would happen. 
And here we are, centuries later, going, I don't know. Here we are, centuries later, going, I don't know, I saw a weird guy on TV, you know. And I don't mean to be dismissive about serious abuse. I, I understand it's a real thing. But I think, like, man, we are missing out if we allow skepticism and cynicism in the past rob us of the voice of God in and over our lives. So if that tr- list is truly open to all disciples of Jesus, and I, I really believe that it is, then I want all of those things. Whatever it looks like for them to be real and true and done right, I want all of those things. And I want all of those things for our entire church. So let me pray over us and ask that that would be so. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.